Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series, Living the Truth, a study in 1 Timothy, with a message titled, The Savior of All People. So turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I assume that we've all heard the questions that are really statements. So you think that you can't go to heaven unless you're a Christian. Does that sound narrow and fundamentalistic and just plain bigoted? I mean, where do you get off making that kind of a judgment about other people? I would have thought that we've gotten beyond such thinking. Now, if you've ever struggled as to what to say when asked such a question or when that statement has been made, relax. You're not alone. And there are some very important answers that must be given. I mean, for one, Christians don't claim to be morally superior to others. And for another, we believe that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We claim that everyone, regardless of race or religion, needs a Savior. And finally, we've never claimed that Christianity saves. We've claimed that Jesus saves. And then almost against the grain comes the verse in 1 Timothy that we need to study today. So I'm reading 1 Timothy 4, verse 10. For this end we toil and strive because we have set our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And it's that one line that the living God is the Savior of all people that has so many of us scratching our heads. Now, before we get into that one line, let's consider what's said in context. The verse starts with the words, For to this end we toil and strive. You know, as always, when reading a sentence, context, well, that's everything. So, to what end? What's the end that Paul is talking about? Or to put it another way, what goal is he working so hard to achieve? So, go back to verses 7 and 8 of the same chapter, where Paul has been making the point that godliness is of value in every way. And so, when we get to verse 10, the end or the goal that Paul is pursuing is that people attain to godliness. Or we might say Paul's working to the point of exhaustion as he strives like an athlete in the games, exerting all the energy that he has to cross the finish line. He is, as some like to say, he's leaving nothing on the table. And of course, that has been Paul's life. Sometimes praised and sometimes hated and often persecuted, expending energy to the extent that he goes without sleep. He's laboring to bring the gospel to as many people as he can. And that's what makes the statement, God is the Savior of all people. It makes it so curious. If God's going to save everyone anyway, why is Paul knocking himself out, as it were, to get the gospel to everyone? I mean, why not relax? I mean, after all, God's going to save everyone. So I hope you see that apart from the questions about the fate of unbelievers, it seems at first reading, there seems to be an inherent contradiction in this verse. And not only with this verse. I mean, you might consider the rest of Paul's writings. Consider just the book of Romans. First four chapters of that book written by Paul, that's a case in point. Romans 1.18 categorically states that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And so from Paul's perspective, not only are all people ungodly, but they're all under the wrath of God. Or go to Romans 3 verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all. Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. And then having said that, notice what Paul writes next. 
As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And so it's undeniable that Paul argues for the universal sinfulness of every single human being. In the rest of Romans 3, Paul then argues that God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. And he means that when Jesus died on the cross, he bore the rightful wrath of God for the sins of all of us. Romans chapter 4 then goes on to argue that we are saved or justified or cleansed from our sinfulness by faith in Jesus who suffered and died on our behalf. Indeed, Paul ends Romans 4 by arguing that if we believe on Christ, righteousness will be credited to our account. And so if I were to sum all that up, Paul's most wide-ranging teaching on salvation is to say, look, we're all in trouble. We're all in sin. We deserve damnation. But God sent his son to pay for our sins, and we can be saved if we place our trust in him. So getting back to 1 Timothy 4 verse 10, we hear Paul saying that to that end, he is labored to the point of exhaustion. And of course, it's not just here where he says it. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 8, he says that his labors and his sufferings to advance the gospel have left him so burdened that he often despaired of life itself. And so again, after all of that, we're left with a statement from 1 Timothy 4 verse 10 that says, we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. So let me suggest first two mistaken interpretations of this text. The first is what we would call the universalist interpretation. So that's the view that everyone's going to heaven in the end, regardless of which pathway they choose. Sometimes people use the language that you know, all roads lead to heaven. And I sometimes hear the universalists say, you know, just pick your religion and your pathway, stay on it and you'll be fine. Behind that belief system, of course, are all the common sayings that we hear people say today. And one thing people say is, just do your best. You know, the other is the common assurance that when people die, no matter what they believed or how they lived, you know, they're in heaven now. Now, if that's what Paul meant when he said that God is the savior of all people, you know, at the very least, we can say that he has contradicted himself here because he said the exact opposite in other places. A second mistaken view is called the inclusivist interpretation. And that viewpoint starts out by sounding biblical. See, inclusivists say, you know, the only way to be saved is through the blood of Jesus. And that all sounds fine, except they end up saying, oh, yes. And in the end, the blood of Jesus is just grand enough that it will save everyone even those who don't believe. And so their understanding of 1 Timothy 4 verse 10, that God is the savior of all people, then especially those who believe goes as follows. They say, imagine an airplane, which is going to a given destination. In this case, it's going to heaven. Everyone gets there, but some get there first class and others by economy. And so those who trust in Jesus, well, they're saved and have all the benefits of their salvation. Those who don't trust in Jesus, well, they're also saved, but they miss out on all the advantages that faith in Jesus could have given them in this life. Now, again, if that's what Paul were saying, he would have again been standing in contradiction to everything he's taught before and all that the rest of the New Testament teaches. I mean, you think about it. From the very beginning of the New Testament, we have a background of wrath. John the Baptist is preaching, Matthew 3, verse 7. He records him as telling people to repent and to flee from the wrath to come. 
And Jesus constantly warned people of the hell of fire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Clearly, Jesus didn't believe that everyone would be saved in the end. Indeed, he said the exact opposite. Matthew 7, 14 records him as saying, For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Paul said the same. 1 Corinthians 9, 22, To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Not all, some. And that's what all the labor was about, save some. No illusions that everything is going to turn out rosy in the end. Rather, the human race is standing before a cataclysm and only a few will be saved. Now, if this is what the entire New Testament Jesus Paul taught, well, again, we're left with the words that God is the Savior of all men. Now, there are those that have argued that it means that potentially God is the Savior of all men, but that's not what the text says. The text says God is the Savior of all men. So it's important that we understand this verse. So let's start with the word Savior. Most of us, when reading those words, immediately assume that the word Savior always refers to salvation from sin. But a study of Scripture tells us that the term Savior is used in a wide variety of ways. 2 Samuel chapter 22. David, as we know, has been through a number of wars. He had enemies beyond numbering. King Saul had tried to kill him. The nations around him raised up armies against him. And at one point, his own son led a civil war directed against him. And after many years of war, we're told that God delivered him from every one of his enemies. And when the wars were over, David wrote a song. 2 Samuel 22, verses 2 to 3 begins, He, that is David, said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. So when David calls God Savior, he doesn't mean here that it's salvation from sin. Rather, his salvation is from those who sought to kill him. God, he said, has saved me from my enemies. And I point this out because for many Christians, salvation has been limited to that one ultimate salvation from sin and the wrath of God. However, the Bible does use salvation in a variety of different ways. Momentum continues to pick up as friends look to travel with us on our 2022 Israel Experience. Join us in this Holy Land adventure from April 24th to May 2nd, 2022, with Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Phil Calloway, special musical guest Laura Hastings, and the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team. Tour the Holy Land, walk where Jesus, Paul, David walk, sail the Sea of Galilee, visit the Jordan River, the Garden of Gethsemane, David's royal palace, and experience communion together at the Garden Tomb. A traveler from our last experience shared, the trip was overwhelmingly wonderful, the trip of a lifetime. The full Israel Experience itinerary is available online, and to ensure an intimate vacation experience, numbers are limited, so register soon. For more information, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit our events page at backtothebible.ca. I've always enjoyed Psalm 107. 
So it begins by simply calling us to give thanks to the Lord for his good. And then it recounts some of the trouble people get into. Verses four to six says, some wandered in desert ways, finding no way to a city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. Then verse 10 tells about people that sat in dark dungeons, prisoners in chains, and they cried to God and he delivered them. Down to verse 23, some went down to the sea in ships. And then the psalm tells us that they were caught in a storm so that their courage melted and they reeled and staggered like drunken men on their ships, storm-tossed, as it were, to the point of sinking. Then they cried to the Lord, and in his mercy, God quieted the storm. The psalm says that these men should give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love. Now, all these saving actions of God are not salvation from sin. Indeed, Psalm 107 doesn't mention a thing about the faith of these various groups of people who got into trouble. But it does mention that they were at the point of despair. And in that, they cried out to God. And then, regardless of their spiritual condition, God saved them. And interestingly enough, when those prisoners were in the dungeon, the psalmist says they got there because of their rebellion against God. And yet God still heard their plea for mercy. It seems that God shows salvation in so many ways, even to those who are unfaithful. 2 Kings 13, 5 and 6 says, Therefore the Lord gave Israel a savior, so they escaped from the hand of the Syrians, and the people of Israel lived in their homes as formerly. Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, which he had made Israel sin, but walked in them, and the Asherah also remained in Samaria. Or consider the words of Nehemiah 9, 26 to 28. It speaks about the history of Israel. There it says, Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back, killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. According to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. And after they had rest, they did evil again before you. You abandoned them in their hands of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. Now please notice, they were not saved because of the fruit of repentance, but they were saved from the misery they were in because of the mercy of God. Now, I don't want to belabor this, but let me give two New Testament examples. And the first is from Jesus, Matthew 5, 45, where Jesus said, For he that is your Father in heaven makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. It's not luck, says Jesus, that when the sun shines on the evil man, it was because that man's creator had sent that sunshine and also the rain to water his crops at the proper time. God has provided for that evil man. In effect, we can say God has saved that evil man by providing him with food to eat and water to drink and clothes to wear and material in his house to live in. Now, every day of his life, God works to save that man from disaster. And all the while, that man acknowledges nothing. And yet God's kindness is felt in his life. Let me draw attention to the second New Testament passage I have in mind. It's found in Acts 14. Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey, and they've just arrived in the city of Lystra, 
It was then in the Roman province of Galatia, or to put it into geographical terms that we can understand today, they were in Turkey. There, as two missionaries enter the city, they see a crippled man who's never walked. The man listens to Paul speak about Jesus, and Luke says the man had faith to be healed. Paul calls on him to stand and walk. The man springs to his feet, starts walking. That was an amazing event. And given their polytheistic culture, the city comes to an instant conclusion. These two men, Paul and Barnabas, are gods, and the gods have come to us in human form. Now, we aren't told how it happened, but they came to conclude that Barnabas was the god Zeus, and Paul was the god Hermes, and then in enthusiasm that the gods have come to them. The people, along with their pagan priests, make preparations to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. Now, of course, Paul and Barnabas immediately set out to stop them. This is nonsense. And so they make their case. And here I'm reading Acts 14, 15 to 17. Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. See, there are several very important statements that are made in that passage. I mean, first, that the gods Zeus and Hermes and all the other gods of the Greek and Roman pantheon are, according to Paul and Barnabas, vain things. From the outset, the people of this culture should have seen evidence for the one creator, not a series of fickle gods and goddesses. And second, the missionaries point out that in the past, God allowed nations to go their own ways, and that meant that God had not, in his divine sovereignty, sent missionaries to them to show them the truth of God. If we had time, we'd talk about that. But third, the missionaries point out that even while they were deprived of missionaries in the past, they were not deprived of witnesses of the one God. God was doing good to them. The rains came, the seasons turned. God cared for his creation, and consequently, people from all over the world were satisfied with two things. The first is food, and the second is gladness. See, gladness is also a gift from God. It's a gift of celebration. The harvest came in. There's food on the table. Our needs were cared for. We're not left at the edge of starvation. We live in plenty, and as a result, the arts flourish, including music and singing and all manner of cultural celebrations. All these things are basic to human happiness, and it was God's goodness that provided all of that. See, from the passage I've just quoted, we should be able to see that Paul can actually say, look, God is the Savior of all people. Theologian Warren Purdy expressed it well. He said, God is the Savior of all men in that, on a temporal basis, he gives them life and strength awakens within them high ideals, provides for their pleasure and sustenance, and graciously allows them to live for a time in the light of his countenance. See, we who read from 1 Timothy chapter 4 today should look at it in our own world and see constantly God is saving people. Yeah, they're sinners, not only individually, but as a society. Our society neglects God. It condemns unborn children to death. It walks in moral and spiritual darkness. And yet God has poured out grace. I mean, think of the wealth of our country. Think of reasons for gladness. Think of the flourishing 
of God's salvation. God has been good to our nation. He saved it, at least for a time, from the judgment that is to come. And then once we understand that, we're now in a place to see why Paul is working so hard. See, he's working so hard because he doesn't know how long this time of grace is going to last. Yeah, it's true. It's been lasting for thousands of years, but now that Christ has come, there is a command that all men and women should now repent, for we don't know how long this period of grace is going to last. Now then, thinking this way, as God the Savior of all people, well, that allows us to see all people as living under the kindness of God. See, I know of non-believers who have prayed for the first time, you know, in the time of crisis, and God has heard their prayers and saved them. And that tells me that God's interested in people's temporal conditions. So that also is the reason why we as believers are called upon to care for the physical well-being of others. And we shouldn't imagine that the work of proclaiming the gospel only considers the eternal souls of people. You know, it's a mark of the followers of Jesus that we are concerned with poverty, with a lack of education, with the absence of health care, with digging of wells and the provision of skills that will allow people to make it forward in this world. We do this because all Christians understand what is meant by the phrase that God is the Savior of all men. But we can also say, however, God is the Savior of those who believe in Christ in a special sense. He saves us from the weight of sin, from righteous eternal judgment. And this is a salvation that's not temporal. And says Paul, to this end we toil and strive. In so doing, Paul is giving instructions to Timothy, who gives leadership to the early church in Ephesus, that Timothy is to teach the rest of the church to bear the same attitude, expend every effort imaginable to bring eternal salvation to as many as possible. Thanks, John. You know, when it comes to prayer, I think a lot of us ask for God's protection or or to save us from difficulty. Why is it sometimes we see these prayers obviously answered and sometimes we just don't? Yeah, sometimes God says no, doesn't he? Uh, Sometimes God has far greater things in mind than we could ever imagine. And he certainly uh, deals with us in ways that are inscrutable to us. But in the end of the day, God is answering our prayers because the ultimate prayer is, Lord, make me more like Christ so that in all of eternity, I might savor Jesus more. So, um, you know, there's a lot of answers to these questions and we need to consider them. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Living the Truth, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Talk about heaven and hell has been forgotten in the present hour. For this reason, current evangelicalism sounds so very different from the kind of faith we find in the pages of the New Testament. In his preaching, Jesus depicted a roadway leading to either heaven or hell. The broad road leads to destruction. The narrow path leads to life. These are words written by Dr. John Newfeld in his newest book, Heaven and Hell. What could be as important as understanding the truth behind the reality of heaven and hell? Choose to request this new book today as our free gift for the month of November only. Call us now at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. 
And while you're there, consider offering a financial gift to support Bible teaching you can trust in important Bible teaching resources like Heaven and Hell.